I'm going to be reading this morning from John chapter 12, starting with verse 12 through 36. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written about him and that these things had been done to him. And the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing witness about him. For this cause also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see, you're doing nothing good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who were going to worship at the feast. These therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began asking him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, And Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, if I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world shall keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, Let him follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And there came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the multitude, therefore, that stood by heard it, and some were saying it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he was saying this to indicate by what kind of death that he was going to die. The multitude therefore answered him and said, We heard out of the law that the Messiah is to reign forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus therefore said to them, For a little while, a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that the darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke, and he departed and hid himself from them. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that you did to show us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm so thankful that you gave the most precious gift that could be given, and he served you so well. Help us this morning to see more light from your word and help us to walk in it when we hear. Thank you for your son, in Jesus' name.
Good morning. My title for this message ranks among my longest. The Hour of the King's Glory, the Not-So-Seeker-Friendly Purpose of Jesus' First Coming. When I gave that to Belen to put in the bulletin, she told me that she was really pleased that this was one of the bulletins that didn't have a lot of stuff in it. In case, you, uh, in case you hadn't noticed yet, being seeker-friendly was never on Jesus' list of priorities. I'd urge you sometime to scan through the four Gospels and note how many times somebody, either a, a person or a group of people, began an encounter with Jesus as fans. And by the end of the encounter, walked away grievously disappointed or angry or even murderously furious toward Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus managed to turn a crowd of probably around twenty or 30,000 people, enthusiastic followers, into a small handful of confused but loyal followers, all in one chapter. That was just a scaled-down preview of what he does in this chapter. The Jewish historian Josephus puts the population of Jerusalem during one of the mid-first century Passovers at about 2.7 million people. People overflowed the, the city of the great temple into all the surrounding communities like Bethany that was just two miles away where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. As Jesus read, rode uh, from Bethany through the city gates of Jerusalem on this first Palm Sunday on a donkey, the entire city was abuzz with the news of His coming. Many people in the crowd were heralding Jesus as the very Messiah whom God had promised through His faithful prophets. The one that God would raise up from among the descendants of King David. The one who would usher in God's own kingdom on earth. In fact, so many people were declaring Jesus to be that long-promised king that the temple authorities were saying to each other, the world has gone after him. That was on a Sunday. Just a few days later, that same crowd that had celebrated Jesus as their conquering king was demanding his crucifixion. How's that for seeker-friendly? What would a man have to do to terribly alienate a whole city full of people who started out ready to bow down to him as their beloved king? Well, I want you to imagine for a moment that your family was in that crowd on that day. They were among the millions of people gathered in Jerusalem, and you had a front row seat just inside the city gates of Jerusalem as Jesus rode into the city. And then I want you to imagine that the first thing you actually got to hear Jesus say, while all the celebration and fanfare was still going on, was that it was now time for him to be glorified by dying. How would you respond to that? This passage is about the glory of the promised King of Kings, and it's about the death of the promised King of Kings. And it's about the fact that those two things are one. His glory and His death. It's not until we recognize that His death is 
glorious that we begin to get the earth-shattering point of this amazing passage. From the moment that Jesus set aside His glory to come into His creation to put on humanity, His glory and His death were inseparably bound together. And He's going to tell us very clearly in this passage that the same is true of us. Our part in His glory absolutely demands our death. Those two are so bound together that we really can't talk about one without talking about the other. My outline this morning is pretty simple. First, the glory that men expected from the king. Then the glory for which the king actually came, which is glory through death. And finally, entering into his glory through our death. First, the glory that men expected from the king. John makes it clear that the crowd's great excitement at Jesus' entry into the city of David was directly tied to the amazing miracle he had just done in Bethany. The raising of a man who had been dead four days. He'd been in the grave for four days, and that man's name was, of course, Lazarus. Just one day before Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem, the chief priests had been plotting to kill Lazarus. So they could do away with the evidence. So that they could create an argument that he had never in fact been raised from the dead. But they waited at least a day too long. The news of Lazarus' resurrection at the hands of Jesus had gone viral. And there was no stopping it. The whole city was infected with that that wonderful virus. Earlier in this same gospel, some people in the multitudes in Judea and Galilee had had asked each other, could this Jesus of Nazareth be the promised Christ? Now that question had changed to a confident proclamation. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the promised Christ. As Jesus approached the gates of the city, the people went out to meet Him, pulling branches from the date palm trees that were plentiful there, laying them in the street ahead of Jesus, along with their own cloaks. Ever since the successful Maccabean revolt of the Jews against the Seleucid king Antiochus a couple of hundred years earlier, palm branches had been a symbol of national victory and blessedness for the Jews. See, the crowd as they lay those palm branches down, was welcoming Jesus as their conquering king. Quoting from Psalm 118, which was one of the best-known psalms prophesying the coming of Messiah, they cried out, Hosanna, which means, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they added, even the king of Israel. The long-promised king of Israel and king of all kings was finally here. He was making his entrance into his city, the city of David, to claim the glory that rightly belonged to him. And surely his exaltation would bring exaltation for the Jews, right? He was the very one that the prophets said would bring an end to Israel's long history of oppression at the hands of godless men and nations. He was the one who would restore the fortunes of Israel. 
set Israel above all nations for praise, fame, and honor, as Moses had declared. While the multitude celebrated the glory of the promised king, the Jewish religious leaders had a different response. They despised that celebration. They saw the people's adoration of Jesus as a very, very dangerous development. They had already said that if they couldn't silence this man, the Romans would come in and take away their place and their nation. Now they said, you see, you're not doing any good. They said to each other, the world has gone after him. All of their efforts to discredit Jesus and to kill Jesus, all those efforts that they had pursued over and over had come to nothing. Now it was pretty clear that Jesus had in fact won the hearts and minds of both Jews and Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire because that's who was gathered in Jerusalem, heralding him as the king. Like the crowd, the Jewish leaders expected the promised Messiah to come as a conquering king. But these leaders, these religious leaders, actually didn't want a conquering king, did they? They already told us what they wanted. They wanted their place and their nation. They wanted what they already had. See, their whole thing was, don't let anybody take away from us what we've got. They didn't want the salvation that Jesus came to give. They didn't even want the salvation that the crowd thought Jesus came to give. When they said the world has gone after him, their assessment was correct in one sense. This huge crowd in Jerusalem that included Jews from all over the Roman Empire along with Gentile God-fearers and many Gentiles who had converted to Judaism represented the whole world. Right after the Pharisees lamented that the world had gone after Jesus, John lends a little element of validity to that claim by telling us that a group of a group of Greeks, of Gentiles, who had come to Jerusalem to worship, worship at the Passover feast, approached Philip asking if, if they could have a private meeting face-to-face with Jesus. In one sense, then, the world, people from all nations and races and backgrounds, had indeed gone after Jesus. But in a, in a far more important sense, the panic to which these Jewish leaders were giving voice was directed at the wrong fear. They had plenty of reason to be in panic mode. But that reason was not the one that they had in mind. See, the Jewish authorities were under the very mistaken impression that the crowd was on board with what Jesus had come to Jerusalem to do. But that was indeed a mistaken Impression. The crowd was enamored with a Messiah whose agenda matched theirs, not with a Messiah whose agenda matched his father's. They had gone after their own construct of Jesus, not the Jesus promised through the prophets. And no doubt to their great delight, these Jewish leaders would very soon discover that all it took to turn the words Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to the words crucify him, crucify him, was for them, the leaders, to just successfully arrest Jesus. Now, they'd been trying to do that for a long time, right? But over and over they had been prevented. Why does John repeatedly say they had been prevented? 
because his hour had not yet come. But now it had. Now it had. Things were about to change dramatically. I want to be careful not to leave the wrong impression about the expectation of the crowd here. Their excitement was entirely understandable. In many respects, their expectations matched up very well with what the prophets in the Old Testament had said God's Messiah would do, right? Those prophets declared that Messiah will indeed rule as conquering king over Israel and over all the peoples of the world in perfect righteousness and justice. But there was something really, really important that was glaringly missing from their expectations about God's Messiah. Something that the Old Testament prophets and one New Testament prophet, John the Baptist, had very clearly proclaimed. What was that critical missing element? That the king's glory depended on the king's death. The king's glory depended on the king's death. In verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, and it appears that some in the multitude heard what he said, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. To be what? To be glorified. And what hour was he talking about? Well, if we keep reading, he's talking about the hour of his death. But I can hear when he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, I can just hear the disciples saying, hallelujah, it's about time. Now we finally get to find out who's going to sit at your right hand and make fools of all these persecutors, the leaders at the temple. But then Jesus rains down a monsoon on their little parade. Verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. You ever think about what that means? It remains by itself alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. See, unless it falls to the earth and dies, it remains by itself. See, if Jesus had not died in our place, his kingdom would have a population of one. But before any of this creation existed, God the Father decreed that his beloved Son would have many Brethren, in Romans 8, Paul says, God who called people to himself through faith in Jesus predestined all whom he has chosen to become conformed to the image of his son, quote, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus died in Titus, according to Titus 2.14, to create, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. In John 6, Jesus says, of all that my Father has given me, I will lose nothing but raise it all up on the last day. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Beloved, we are that fruit. We who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone are that fruit that the Father promised to the Son. Just a few verses later, Jesus speaks again of the coming of his appointed hour. 
And he's talking about the hour of his death. Knowing that it would be a most grievous hour for him, he says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this very purpose, I came to this hour. For this very purpose, I came to this hour. We can only just begin to comprehend the weightiness of those words. Just a couple of days after this, Jesus would ask his father, as he shed tears of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweated blood. If there was any way for his father to withhold the cup of his terrible wrath from him. But there in the Garden of Gethsemane, just as here, Jesus would answer his own request. He would say, But Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus knew before he took on humanity, he knew from eternity past that this hour was why he came from heaven to earth. So he said, Father, glorify thy name. And there came a voice out of heaven that said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it. Again, how had Jesus already glorified his Father? By humbling himself and taking on our humanity, by living a sinless life, by perfectly fulfilling every day of his life on this earth the requirement of the law that reflected the character of God, by despising sin, yet giving up his own rightful glory to live among sinners. Now, Jesus was going to glorify his Father by doing exactly what God through the prophets had said he must do. By rendering himself as the perfect guilt offering for the sins of mankind. It was at this point that Jesus said to the multitude, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And John adds, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The Jewish leaders had lamented that the world had gone after Jesus, but their panic was misplaced. The world had gone after their own construct of Jesus, a Messiah who would deliver them, but not from their sin. They didn't think they needed that kind of deliverance. But now Jesus declared that he would indeed draw all men to himself. He didn't mean every human being. <laughs> he meant people from every place and every nationality and every background. But how would he fulfill that amazing promise? How would Jesus draw all men to himself? How would he populate his kingdom with people from every tribe and tongue and nation? There's only one way. By dying. By dying. He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. But this crowd that had been ready to crown him as king was expecting, expecting a different kind of lifting up of their great king. Every Jerusalemite knew about the Roman mode of execution for common criminals. 
the mode called crucifixion. They had all at one time or another seen the condemned criminals up on the hill just outside the city of Jerusalem, the hill called Golgotha. When Jesus used the words lifted up from the earth, the multitude started to get really, really nervous. It was finally registering with them that Jesus' agenda wasn't their agenda for Jesus. Verse 34 gives us their response to Jesus' declaration about being lifted up from the earth. They answered him. They said, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They use the phrase the law here as shorthand to refer to the whole Old Testament. And they're saying, look, we've heard out of the law, we've heard from the prophets that the Christ is to remain forever. And they were right. What they were saying was true. It was an accurate representation of what the prophets had said. Messiah was supposed to reign forever. When God declared his unilateral covenant with King David in 2 Samuel 7, he promised to raise up from David a seed, a descendant, singular by the way, just like with Abraham, who would rule on David's throne forever. Isaiah 9 declared to that same king, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it in righteousness and justice. For how long? From then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That was God's promise concerning his Messiah. And the multitude here in Jerusalem had that promise firmly in mind. So when Jesus declared that he would be lifted up to die, they said to him, that can't be. You must be talking about some other son of man. Because Messiah is supposed to glorify God by enduring, not by dying. Now lest we judge this crowd too harshly, we should remember that Peter had the same reaction. In Matthew 16, right after, Pete, right after Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus then began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And what was Peter's reaction to all of that? He took Jesus aside and he said to him, God forbid it, Lord, this will never happen to you. Peter was convinced that Jesus was supposed to glorify God by enduring, not by dying. But what Peter missed and what this multitude missed from the Old Testament prophecies was as critical as critical gets. Because the same prophets who declared that Messiah's kingdom would endure forever also declared that he would suffer and die so that men and women like you and me could live with him in that kingdom. He would glorify God by doing both, by dying and by enduring, but the enduring depended on the dying. Listen carefully to Isaiah 53. I'm going to put it up here. As I read it, I want you to look at the conditional words and 
and how they're tied to other things in the text. As a result of, therefore, if, because, his grave, Messiah's grave, was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the spoils of battle with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Beloved, that's the greatest passage on substitutionary atonement in the whole Bible. Especially go back and look at verses 4 through 6 of that same passage. Look at those conditional statements and then help me answer these questions. On what would the prolonging of Jesus' days after his death and burial be utterly dependent? And by the way, in order for someone's days to be prolonged after they're dead and buried, what has to happen? They have to be raised, right? So the resurrection is right here in this passage written 700 years before Christ came. On what would the satisfaction and good pleasure of Jesus' Father utterly depend? On what would the restoration of Jesus to His rightful exaltation forever absolutely depend? On what would the establishment of Messiah's eternal kingdom populated with human beings made worthy to dwell with Him in the presence of God in that kingdom absolutely depend? On his death. It would depend on his death. All those things. On his perfect sacrifice of himself in our place. On the anguish of his soul as he bore our iniquity. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, the punishment for our well-being, our peace, our shalom with God fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. Why was that necessary? Because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But God has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It is on that necessary foundation of Christ's substitutionary death that the kingdom of Messiah is built. Why was that necessary? Because without his death in our place, his kingdom would have had a population of one. The seed would have remained by itself alone. Now the time for that foundational event to be fulfilled was at hand. Over and over in this gospel, John said the hour had not yet come. His hour, now it had, now it had. To this day, many Jews readily acknowledge that the Old Testament 
prophecies of the conquering king in the line of David apply to Messiah. They're still waiting for him. But not the prophecies of the suffering servant of God. They're convinced that the conquering king cannot be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even when the same prophecies written by the same prophet in the same passage talk about both. You know what Isaiah 52 and 53 starts and ends with? It starts by saying, Behold my servant, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And then it talks about his his humiliation, his suffering, his death, his burial in the tomb of a rich man, his resurrection, and then it comes back around to the fact that he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. He will share the spoils of battle with the strong. Why? Because, because he poured out himself unto death. Beloved, if he had not done these things, he would not have been the promised Messiah. If he had come into Jerusalem wearing a crown of gold and royal robes, agreeing with the people that it was time for him to usher in the kingdom of God on earth like they wanted him to, he would not have been the promised Messiah. He would have been a fraud. And if anybody should have known that, it was the, it was the very men who demanded his crucifixion who orchestrated his crucifixion, who handed off his crucifixion to the hands of godless men. Friends, if you came here this morning thinking that heaven is going to be populated by people who managed to make themselves good enough to be there, good enough for God to kind of turn a blind eye to all their failures and shortcomings and sins, I have some really bad news for you, and I have some really, really good news for you. The bad news is that you are catastrophically and fatally wrong. There is only one way that you or anyone else who has ever lived will be worthy to live with Jesus in his heavenly kingdom. Jesus had to die. He had to die in the place of sinners like you and me. And the good news, the very, very good news, is that he did. There will be only one kind of people in the eternal kingdom of God, those whose sin-stained robes and sin-enslaved hearts have been forever washed white as snow by the poured-out blood of Jesus Christ, the only blood that cleanses anything. Those are the only kind of people that will be there. won't matter whether in this life they were Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free men, male or female. It won't matter if men consider them to be saints or sinners. The only works that will matter in the eyes of God, Romans chapter 5, is the one perfectly righteous work done by the representative of mankind, Jesus Christ. The last Adam. Only the cleansing, atoning blood of Jesus will qualify anyone to dwell with Him. How do you come to receive that perfect cleansing? 
How do you go from being worthy only of hell to being worthy to dwell in the presence of the one true, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God who does not grade on the curve? Jesus has already told us several times in this Gospel. and He tells us again right at the end of this passage. Verse 36, He says, While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and He departed and hid Himself from them. And I believe that sentence in verse 36 is the last sentence that He uttered recorded in the Gospel of John before he was arrested and carried away to be crucified. I believe the statements he makes later in this chapter are to his disciples. And then all of the upper room discourse from chapter 13 to 17 is to his disciples. So you think maybe verse 36 is important? While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. To be cleansed from your sin, you have to trust in the one who paid for your sin by dying in your place. You cannot save yourself. His atoning death is the only salvation that exists. Finally, and this is important, we need to see what Jesus says to us who do trust in him. This is as fundamental to the Christian life as anything you will find anywhere in God's Word. Those of you who like to get to the so what, Jesus lays it right out on the table for us here. In verses 23 and 24, we already saw, He said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now look at the words that come from his lips in the next two verses. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. But if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about us who are the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. When he says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me, what does he mean? Follow him where? The verse just before it told us the answer. Follow him into death. Follow him into death. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. See, the servant is not greater than the master. If he had to suffer and he had to die, the servant has to suffer and die as well. That's not popular to preach that. But Jesus preached it unapologetically. When he says, where I am there shall my servant be also, he's using words that sound a whole lot like the words he'll speak in John 14 when he's telling his disciples that he goes to prepare a place for them that where he is there, they may be also. And that's a very positive, very hopeful thing. And guess what, beloved? So is this. But here he's talking about following him to a different place. He's talking about following him, following him into his death. See, you can't have real life without losing the life you have. Now, please don't get me wrong. Redemption isn't a deal between you and God. It isn't you give him something and he gives you something. 
The redemption that brought you out of the darkness and into the light, out of death and into eternal life, was a gift from God to you. It was resurrection life given to a dead person who had absolutely nothing to offer to God. But you need to know, you need to know, beloved, that when God gave you that gift, you died. You experienced a marvelous, blessed, beautiful death. Your connection with everything that used to make life worth living to you was broken forever. Not by you, by God. If you try to go back and put your hands on the things that you used to think constituted life, to lay claim to those things once again, God will frustrate your efforts over and over and over again until you realize that your connection with those things died. It's forever gone. There's no going back. And that's really, really good. Because those things were never life to begin with. Brothers and sisters, there is nobody on this earth more miserable than a miserable Christian. And the surest way to be a miserable Christian is to try going back to what you died to now that God has made you His own. If you try to find satisfaction in material wealth or sexual self-indulgence or abundant entertainment or compliant children or a wonderfully submitted wife or an amazingly loving husband or anything else that people look to for the good life other than God Himself, you can be assured that God will make you miserable in that pursuit. Because when He saved you, You died to those things. You know what your life is? Your life is relationship with the incomparable person who saved you for himself. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You want to know what your life is? Your life is relationship with the one who saved you for himself. You can't replace that real life with anything that you find here. If you try, God won't let you. That's not a threat. That's a promise. That is a marvelous, marvelous and gracious and loving promise from the God who bought you for His Son. Jesus said that if you love your life, you'll lose it. If you hate your life, you'll keep it forever. What does that actually look like? What does it mean to hate your life The Apostle Paul, I'm almost done here, the Apostle Paul expands on this very helpfully in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Listen to these words. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, not the things, not the things that are on the earth. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Listen to this. Set your mind on the things above, not the things on earth. Isn't it interesting that that's where Paul starts when he talks about about being there instead of here, about your life being all about the eternal things. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Why? For you've died. And your life, your real life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Hating your life does not mean hating life. It means loving real life instead. Hating your life means what it means is not falling for a crummy imitation. It means daily giving up on and walking away from the things that look really, really good because God has told you straight up that they don't constitute life. He does. And please hear this last part. It means daily taking up his cross, which is now your cross too. It means denying self because self died when Jesus gave you new life. It means entering into his humiliation, his suffering, his death, Every single day. It means walking daily in the knowledge that the glory to which God has called you is a glory accomplished only through your death. Beloved, when you come to see your participation in the suffering and dying of Jesus as cause for joy inexpressible and full of glory, your life will never be the same. And some of the people around you will be forever brought into that same inexpressible joy because you followed your Savior and your King into His glorious. Dear Father, we pray that you would not let us turn our eyes away from this amazing, amazing truth. It's nothing we would have ever come up with, Lord. But this is life. Father, make us true followers of Jesus who are willing to go with him into his death so that we, as your children, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, may suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For we know that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. We pray these things in Jesus' precious, amazing name.